From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. When the DREAM Act was first introduced in Congress 20 years ago, Marissa Molina was a young girl, arriving in the United States and Colorado, undocumented with her family. About 10 years later came DACA and New Hope for Dreamers. It's a two-decade journey that's taken Molina to the forefront of the issue in Colorado. We'll talk with her about what's next in the debate over undocumented immigration. Plus, health officials shift their attention toward people who are still hesitant to get the COVID-19 vaccine. And the past is not gone. Historians say Colorado needs to grapple with its history with the Ku Klux Klan. We recognize that the institutions, the policies that were implemented and supported during the 20s help us make sense of today and the inequities that exist today. Because of community support, Colorado Public Radio has scaled up its operations, delivering trustworthy information and music to audiences throughout the state on multiple easy-to-access platforms, with spaces for us all to share and embrace stories of hope, resilience, creativity, and joy. What CPR brings to your life is only possible because of financial support from the community, many giving as Evergreen members, donating what feels affordable on a monthly basis. Add your support at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. Young immigrants have sought a pathway to citizenship in the U.S. for decades. April marked the 20th anniversary of the introduction of a bill that could do that, the DREAM Act, into Congress. Since that bill was proposed, DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, took effect, but it's still in limbo. We're going to explore where things stand today. Let's start with DACA. It offers DREAMers some protection, and it actually has roots in Denver. CPR's Rachel Estabrook revisits the young people who helped create it and explains how their quest continues. Millions of immigrants have grown up in this country and only know this as home, but they still could be sent away at any time. In 2012, some of them demanded a change. Even though we don't have a particular date or action that you can say this is the origin of the DREAMers movement, I think in terms of politics and the impact, this was the moment. Jonathan Alcantar teaches Latinx studies at the University of Northern Colorado. He's talking about a particular week in June 2012 in Denver. Issue an executive order to stop the deportation of dreamers. That's when a young man named Javier Hernandez, who was brought to the United States from Mexico when he was a small kid, walked into President Obama's re-election campaign office in Denver. He had a petition in his hand, ready to deliver it. TV cameras followed. His T-shirt said, we will no longer remain in the shadows. He sat with another dreamer named Veronica Gomez. They thought they would get arrested for this protest, and that doing it on TV could force Obama's hand after Congress had failed to pass immigration reform. Looking back on it now, they knew it was risky, But both of them didn't think they had much choice. Hernandez couldn't get a driver's license to work, and he couldn't get financial aid for school because he was undocumented. When it became obvious, when it became a problem, would have to be, you know, getting close to graduating high school and then trying to figure out what to do to go to college. That's why he went to the Obama campaign office that day in 2012, to demand the president, in the middle of his re-election bid, do an executive order to stop deportations of people like he and Gomez, who had been brought to the U.S. as kids. 
the chance to make that a reality was worth the risk of being put in jail. But they did not get arrested. The media is all like ready, their cameras, right? Everyone's ready for, for this moment. Uh, and then nothing happens. They still drew plenty of attention, though. When the Obama campaign staff let them stay inside, Hernandez and Gomez switched to plan B, start a hunger strike. At first, that meant Googling, how do you do a hunger strike? You know, we're like, we realize that we're not going to survive off water. Like, we knew it was going to be at least five days. We needed, like, Gatorade, Pedialyte. They sat there without food for six days and nights. Outside, people gathered to support them. It was palpable. It was tense. It was exciting. Julie Gonzalez was in the crowd. She says there were a mix of people, advocates from Denver like her, along with city councilors and lawmakers. And the television cameras kept rolling. Their protest ended when their friends committed to occupy Obama campaign offices in other cities to keep the momentum going. After years of advocacy, the demonstration got results. This sit-in took place, and it was just a jolt. And then very soon thereafter... Effective immediately, the Department of Homeland Security is taking steps to lift the shadow of deportation from these young people. For Hernandez, getting DACA status meant he could visit family in Mexico, including his dad. Gonzalez is now a state senator, and she says the demonstration galvanized the Latino and Chicano community in Colorado and helped lead to new state laws to help immigrants. Now we have DACA recipients, you know, serving on boards and commissions here in Colorado who are teachers who graduated and who are now giving back to community. But DACA has never been a perfect solution. There's still no way for DREAMers to actually become citizens through the program. A bill in the U.S. Senate, whose passage is very much up in the air, could give them a path to citizenship. But DACA itself could end any day because of a legal case in Texas. Hernandez says he hopes now is the time for real change. How do we get back to being able to be as bold as we were when the last four years we've just been at the defensive? You know, yeah, I'm tired. <laughs> like it's, it's been a long four years. But more than ever, I am so inspired, you know, as well. He says DACA was a first step, but he hopes it's not the last. I'm Rachel Estabrook, CPR News. Some of the sound you heard in this story is from a documentary about the 2012 demonstration. It's on YouTube, and it's called American Dreamers. About a decade before DACA, Congress debated the DREAM Act. It was the first piece of legislation that gave so-called DREAMers that moniker. The bipartisan bill proposed a pathway to citizenship for young undocumented immigrants who came to the United States as children. It failed narrowly. So have other bills like it. Marissa Molina was just a kid when that first DREAM Act was proposed in 2001. That was the year she came to Colorado from Mexico with her parents. She was nine years old and undocumented. 20 years later, she's a DACA recipient and the first undocumented person to be appointed to a state board, the Metropolitan State University Board of Trustees. She's also the Colorado director of Forward.us, where she advocates for immigration policy reform. Welcome, Marissa. Thanks for having me. Marissa Molina, you were just nine years old and new to the U.S. the first time the DREAM Act came before Congress, although it wasn't brought to a vote for another nine years. Do you have any memories of that moment? I do not. You know, I came to the U.S. having a very clear understanding for my parents that we were going to be undocumented, but not understanding what that meant. And so at that at the young age of nine, right, I just came 
following those hopes and dreams my parents had for us um, to go to school and get the types of opportunities they could have never given us in Mexico. And that's all I remember from that time. And they did, you, you did have an understanding of your immigration status. Do you feel like your parents shielded you a little bit from the conversations about immigration policy that were happening at the time? Absolutely. You know, I think um, for a long time, I would hear my dad particularly say, you know, by the time you get to go to college, like immigration reform is going to pass and we're going to have a pathway for you to go to college and stay here. And I just really clung to that idea and that hope that my parents had that, you know, surely (laughs) in the years that awaited me um, to get to college, I was only in the fourth grade when I came here, that this problem would have been resolved. And so I just kind of kept that hope. And I think it was when I started high school in 2006, and you started to see um, this uprising in dreamers, who at the time were not called dreamers, right, but undocumented young people across the country who were saying, like, we're actually really tired of waiting, that I started to understand a little bit more what the journey ahead looked like for me. And Congress actually first voted on the DREAM Act the same year that you graduated high school in 2010. And I'm curious about how your awareness of immigration policy and those conversations changed as you were growing up. What was it like to watch the DREAM Act fail just a few months into your freshman year at Fort Lewis College? Yeah, you know, I remember um, how difficult it was, right? There, in 2010, there was no in-state tuition for undocumented students in Colorado and there was no DACA. And living in a place like Glenwood Springs meant that um, I didn't have a lot of information and my school didn't have a lot of information on how to support folks like me. So as my college counselor, Mr. Leffler, who, you know, was at the front lines of fighting for me to get to college and he did everything it took and I got to college and I knew that was just the first step. And I remember my dad saying, look, there's this policy um, that if it passes, it's going to allow us to pay in-state tuition for you and it's going to allow you to graduate and like become the professional that you want to become. And so I had all of these hopes, right? All this hope that this law would pass. And I was at the time not sharing with people that I was undocumented. And I remember leaving my, my class and going to my dorm room and sitting on my computer to watch the watch C-SPAN and watch the vote come in. And I will never forget, you know, the pain of watching that vote fail, because in that moment, I realized like how fragile that hope and that optimism that undocumented people have is, because it always rests in the hands of people who are making decisions that we never get to elect. And so I remember feeling this, like so much anger and so much frustration because You know, I had been told if you do the right thing, if you work hard, America is a place that rewards you. And here I was having done everything I had been asked to do and still watching that vote fail. And I felt like, you know, like that dream and that hope that I had was was gone. Mm. And I hear in your story, your parents trying to help you hold that hope. But because you were undocumented, like you said, you weren't eligible for a lot of financial aid and your family was in debt to pay tuition and you nearly dropped out your sophomore year. Then the Obama administration established the DACA program that summer in 2012. How did that change things for you? 
you know, just like even earlier hearing President Obama just announcing the DACA program made me feel really emotional because I remember the day that he made that announcement, I was cleaning a house with my mom, which is how I paid for school. And I remember saying to her, this was what you had always hoped that we would get some protection and some solution so that the dream that you came here seeking with me would be accomplished. And, you know, it just dramatically changed my life. Um, it allowed me to go back to school um, to, because I applied for a private student loan that I couldn't before. But it also gave me this new sense of purpose in this fight and in this movement, right? Because I grew up watching people, right, like Javier and Veronica, who were doing all this amazing advocacy, people who were walking from Miami to Washington, D.C. to advocate for DREAM Act. And I remember saying to myself, like, I wish I was as brave and as courageous as they are in fighting for myself. And I never felt like I could tap into that sense of agency when I was young and undocumented and very afraid. But DACA gave me this opportunity to say, like, I want to own my story. I don't want to give people, particularly politicians, the ability to write my story. I want to own that. Um, and DACA really gave me this, this freedom and really, um, I think, inspired by those dreamers that came before me who have done, who did this work before there was any protection. Marissa, thank you for sharing that. Let's bring in Ifrain Leel Escalera into this conversation. He is also a DACA recipient, as well as an artist, an amateur biologist, and a student at MSU. He lives in Denver. Welcome, Ifrain. Hi, thank you for having me. Ifrain, your story and, Mar and Marissa's have a lot of similarities. You came to the U.S. without documentation around the same time. You were also in elementary school. Tell me a little about how your immigration status shaped your childhood. Um, that's a really great question. I think um, from a very young age, I've uh, I've always known um, our situation in this country, and it definitely um, distorted, I guess, how I perceived moving forward in this country. And um, it did take a toll, definitely, um, throughout my 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 youth, my teenage years. You know, always being aware of of the barriers of not going to college and I having you know, particular interests in in biology and science and, and how that specific field is very, um, well, it's funded by, by the federal government and I can't take advantage of any of that. Um, so it did, it did, um, it did bring me down throughout my, my youth and my, well, throughout my youth, yeah, my, my youth and my teenage years and still till this day, actually. <laughs> Yeah, tell me about how being a DACA recipient has shaped your adult life, both the ways that it's helped, but also the ways that there are limitations in the program. Um, you know, like um, like Marissa said, it did give me a sense of purpose. Once um, I think it was on, I was in, I was sitting in an IHOP with my former partner, and we're we're both DACA recipients. And you know, that day when it was announced, it definitely brought a sense of ease of of wanting to do something more than what we were currently doing. Um, it definitely, you know, gave that push to to pursue something more than what I was currently doing at the time. So, you know, but still it does have its downsides. Even to this day, I still can't take advantage of, of, 
of federal grants or do certain fellowships or internships. Um, but, you know, we got to keep moving forward and we got to find um, a way out or a breakthrough and, and um, just keep going. Let's talk about where things stand now. 20 years after the original DREAM Act was introduced, there is another bill that would make a pathway for citizenship to, for DREAMers. The House passed it in March. This time, Democrats narrowly control the Senate, and the, uh, we know that this is an increasingly polarized partisan issue. Ibrahim, what do you think are the chances that this is signed into law now? You know, I I do still have that bit of hope. Um Definitely, I, I am hopeful that this will will get signed into law. And, you know, part of that process is me, is me being vocal and sharing my experiences and using whatever platform I've built for myself, along with with the people that have helped me get here. You know, all the past DACA recipients and dreamers, everyone that's been, you know, fighting for this since the very beginning, um, you know, keep going and, and using the platform that they've created to to make a dent and uh, make it known that we have something to contribute and, and something worthwhile and of value. And I think there is, there is a good chance um, that things will get for the better. Um, DACA definitely was an improvement from our previous situations, but it's still not quite there yet. And we got to keep, we got to keep using our, our voices and our experiences to, you know, fight for ourselves as, as Marissa said. Marissa, what's your sense? After two decades of bills like this coming before Congress and failing, what do you think are the chances that this bill is signed into law? Yeah, you know, I think one thing I want to highlight is that um, for a long time, people have been talking about immigration as this wedge issue, when actually some recent polling that, that we conducted shows that immigration is a consensus issue. Um, this polling found that the DREAM Act has over 72% of support among the electorate. And so I think, and, and this is both Republicans and Democrats and independents. And so I think it's important to understand that actually the American people are ready and they want Congress to take action. The same polling that we did shows that nearly two thirds of voters say um, that they would be upset if immigration reform didn't pass. Um, and so I think to me, when I see these numbers and I see the way that folks like Efrain and, and all the other advocates who have been out there with us, um, along with the dreamers sharing their stories, right, is like we have moved the needle and we have moved the narrative to ensure that Americans across our country understand that we are their neighbors, their friends, their teachers, right, the nurses, the essential workers, and that it is time that we fix this problem. I think that um, we have the right opportunity in this moment in time to do something and Congress has to act. And I think to all of our allies who stood with us, like Efrain was saying, through some of the hardest years in the past four years under the Trump administration, like we need you again, right? We need to make sure that our members of Congress um, know how important this issue is and how important finding a solution is. I think to be here today, to be talking about a legislation that was introduced 20 years ago and to see how little progress we've made towards solving this problem, um, like I want to make, I want to move, I want to see our country move forward. And if we can't solve hard problems like immigration, what does that say about our ability to solve some of the biggest problems facing our country today? So Congress has to act and they have to get this right.
Ifrain, what would you want to say to people when you hear people say that giving dreamers a pathway to citizenship encourages illegal immigration? What would you want them to know about your experience being a dreamer? I think um, what I would want people to know about me as a as a DACA recipient, as an undocumented person, as a dreamer, is you know to look you know in the mirror and see how things are, are happening around them and what experiences have shaped their lives and what could definitely go downside. You know, as as with us, we had to move to a different place for a better living, for a better future. Um, I think I would want them to see the the contributions I have made in my community and the investments and in time and energy I've I've put into the community and, and how I've you know grown through it and how I've helped the community grow through it and um, apply it to themselves and you know just keep learning from it and give us that opportunity that um, that perspective of of um, what a better life could look like. In about the 45 seconds we have left, Marissa, what would you tell people who are skeptical? You know, I think so important that throughout this pandemic, we have had so many undocumented people who have been working on the front lines, um, making sure that we are fed, being our nurses, our teachers. And so I think my question to people is like, who do we want to be as a country when we call people essential, but we turn our backs on them? And I think this is an opportunity to see people, to recognize their contributions and to understand that they are at the very fabric and the foundation of all of our communities. Thank you both so much for joining us and for sharing your stories. Marissa Molina is the Colorado director of Forward.us, where she advocates for immigration policy reform. She's also the first undocumented person to be appointed to a state board in Colorado, the Metropolitan State University Board of Trustees. And she's a DACA recipient. Ibrahim Leal Escalera is also a DACA recipient living in Denver. He's an artist, an activist, an amateur biologist, and a student at MSU. back, ledgers from the Ku Klux Klan show the hate group's influence in Denver in the 1920s. We'll talk about how that informs life today. Over the last year, America has been searching its soul over questions of racial justice, and we've been following people working to change police departments from the outside and within. I don't think that all cops are bad, but sometimes I wish that people wouldn't put us on the pedestal. I'm Joe Erickson, host and producer of CPR's new podcast, Systemic. We're sharing stories of people challenging the status quo. Subscribe to Systemic from Colorado Public Radio, everywhere you listen. Colorado's attempt to vaccinate nearly 6 million people is a massive effort, and it's entering a new phase. For the most part, those who are enthusiastic and wanted the COVID-19 vaccine have gotten it. As CPR health reporter John Daly explains, now the campaign is shifting to reduce barriers and reach those who may still have questions. Gabriel Hutron sits in a post-shot observation area in a high school gym in northeast Denver. He just got his first shot of the Moderna vaccine. He says a pair of uncles got hospitalized with COVID-19 and chalks up any doubts he had to common skepticism. 
I didn't try to get a vaccine beforehand, but uh, it came up to me about five days ago. I've had a, a good amount of relatives throughout my family uh, contract COVID, and quarantine sucks. <laughs> no one wants to be alone in a house for a month. 18-year-old Brazan Guthrie is here, too. The Metro State student was the last person in her household to get the shot. She tried to get an appointment before, but was unsuccessful. Did you have any questions or doubts about getting the shot for yourself? Not really, no. I just thought it would be the best decision to get it done instead of not doing it and then risking getting COVID. These two are exactly the kinds of people the state is hoping to reach now. They're both young. He's 22, she's 18, and from groups, Latino and Black Coloradans, whose vaccination rates have lagged behind their share of the population. But at least so far on this day, they don't have a lot of company. Nurse Haley DeForest says it's been pretty quiet. Demand, I feel like, has gone down a little bit. It's just trying to figure out who still needs vaccines, because obviously we have not vaccinated the entire population. Signs are popping up. Vaccinations in Colorado are plateauing, with only around 40 percent of the state's eligible population now fully vaccinated. One example, a mass vaccination site run by the federal emergency agency FEMA at the state fairgrounds in Pueblo. Julie Brooks is a spokeswoman. We've had a significant number of appointments available. So keep it in mind that we can accommodate up to 3,000 a day, if not a little more. And most days during the week, we run between two and 500. Brooks says between those who will never get a shot and those who already have, are a large group of people she calls the movable middle who still may have questions or lack access. Pueblo County Public Health Director Randy Evitz sees it that way, too. There's probably about 25 percent or so that are just kind of hedging a little bit. They think they will get it, but they just want to make sure that it's safe and that, that it's convenient for them. Evitz says nearly half of the eligible population in Pueblo County has taken advantage of at least one dose of the vaccine. That's a figure below other large front-range counties. And a lot of people are still getting sick. Evitz calls it a sharp increase from where we were. It is what we're considering our fourth wave. State data show counties with lower vaccination rates like Pueblo are seeing higher levels of disease transmission. Dr. Sandeep Vijan at Parkview Medical Center said late last week the hospital had 38 COVID patients. He says if it adds just six more, the county would hit orange on the local dial, forcing it to issue new capacity limits for businesses. We are teetering on the edge. We have been teetering on this edge for the past two weeks or so. Just to give you some perspective, all those patients who are in the hospital today, none of them are vaccinated. Most are in their 30s, 40s, and 50s. Many are Hispanic and live with obesity, a key marker for severe illness. Vijan says if hospitalizations continue at the pace they've been going, by late May, Parkview will hit levels it saw in the brutal fall surge. Then, Vijan says, it was essentially overrun with coronavirus patients and had to transfer some elsewhere. The tragedy is many more people are going to die in Pueblo, in the country, around the world, until we all embrace vaccination for the powerful tool that it is. And that is my big message to people out there, that we don't have good treatment for this today. That means the job ahead to get more people vaccinated will require perseverance, plus creativity and innovation, says Dr. Oswaldo Granardo. He's chief diversity and inclusion officer at Centura Health. 
which has been running a number of vaccination sites. A lot depends on how aggressive we are and what the messaging is for those people who are still left to get us over that hump. So it's, it's going to be a much more difficult road this last leg of this race. And that will require different messages for different groups. Michelle Mills, CEO of the Colorado Rural Health Center, says she's heard anecdotally that perhaps 60 percent of rural residents are looking to get the vaccine. Those who will decline, she says, express concerns about safety of the vaccine, kind of lack of trust of vaccines, personal choice, existing health conditions. The concerns seem to be consistent with that of the flu vaccine yearly that you hear from folks. Addressing those concerns will be critical in the new vaccine phase, says Dr. Anuj Mehta, a pulmonologist. He's part of a vaccine equity task force with the group Immunize Colorado. That takes us away from, let's vaccinate 6,000 a day. So let's target a very small community. Let's gain their trust. Let's make the vaccine available to them and answer their questions. And so maybe through that relationship, we'll vaccinate 200 people in this very close-knit community. That means more equity pop-up clinics and targeted education events. As an example, Meta says he recently gave a vaccine talk to a community group, the Colorado Center for the Blind. And you need to start targeting specific populations for education to meet them where they are, understand their concerns, educate them as best as possible, and try and help them make the right decision for them. That message resonates in the high school gym in Northeast Denver. This COVID-19 drive was organized by Black Lives Matter 5280 in partnership with Denver Public Health and Environment. BLM's Ariel Lipscomb says she's not disappointed by the turnout. I think after this first one, we'll have more success once people realize that we're not going to give up. We're going to still be here for you. This will be available. Have you been vaccinated? I have. I asked Lipscomb, who's a black resident of Denver, if she had initial reservations about getting the vaccine. She says, absolutely. The apprehension in our community is real and valid. But at the end of the day, I did my research. I made an informed decision and chose to go forward. And she says she's confident with time, many more Coloradans of all kinds will do the same. But the clock is ticking. Hospitalizations are up 29% over the last two weeks, and Colorado's case numbers last week rivaled that of California. I'm John Daly, CPR News. Read more about this story and other COVID-19 news at CPR.org. There's also a vaccine guide with all sorts of information. It includes details on Colorado's six mass vaccination sites and other providers around the state. The past is not gone. Colorado's history with white supremacy and hate shape the present. We're going to explore that with History Colorado. It recently published ledgers which list members of the Ku Klux Klan in the greater Denver area in the mid-1920s. Don DePrince is History Colorado's chief operating officer. Nikki Gonzalez is an associate professor of history and vice provost for diversity and inclusion at Regis University. She's also a member of History Colorado's State Historians Council. Thank you both for being here today. Thank you. Thank you. Don, History Colorado has had the ledgers since the 1940s when a Rocky Mountain news reporter anonymously donated them in the form of two leather-bound books. But they'd essentially been kept secret until the 1990s when they were made available to researchers. Why did History Colorado decide to make them public now? They have been 
accessible to researchers, like you said, for several decades, and then also on display um, in exhibits, both at our current building, History Colorado Center, and our previous building uh, for much of the last few decades. And what we've done now is make them much more accessible to the public. Uh, being digitized allows people from wherever they are to be able to, to access this and, and do the kind of research that they might be interested in. The digitization also enables different kinds of research that's more than flipping through the book. It makes things searchable. Um, there are ways that this data can be mapped and, and new understandings can be gleaned from from the digitization of this data. And what all went into that decision to digitize these ledgers? We are the stewards of the state's collection. But part of that isn't just about storing these and and hiding our collection away. Uh, Half of that job really is about access and making sure that the residents of Colorado and scholars who want to know more about Colorado have access to the things that we are collecting on their behalf. And Nikki, these ledgers, they list a lot of names. What can we learn from those names listed? Well, we can learn from the sheer number of names that are listed that the Klan was very pervasive in Colorado politics and specifically Denver politics during the 1920s. We learned that some of the most prominent families, you know, may have ties to the Klan. We also learned that, you know, some of those very prominent names had a lot of power in the 20s. And so, from that, we, we recognize that the institutions, the policies that were implemented and supported during the 20s help us make sense of today and the inequities that exist today. And just for a little bit of context, nearly a third of the 100,000 white men living in Denver in 1920 were registered members of the KKK. And names listed on the ledger include two governors, the superintendent of Denver's Mountain Park System, the Denver County Clerk, the city's building inspector, and KKK members worked in the Denver Police Department, district, county courts, the U.S. Mint. The list goes on. What does that tell us about the influence and the presence of the KKK at the time? Well, it tells us that it was an extremely influential organization, and it tells us that You know, for some people, maybe they didn't have the harsh beliefs that were espoused by the Klan, but in order to further their careers, they they kind of sold their soul and and joined the Klan because that was one way that white Anglo-Saxon Protestant men could gain political and economic power in Denver at the time. And 100 years ago really isn't long ago. What do the ledgers tell us about white supremacy and hate in Colorado and America today? Yeah, I mean, 100 years ago is not. I mean, there are still people who are living who heard from family members who had firsthand accounts of the kinds of terrorism, the kinds of intimidation that the Klan um, perpetrated on their families. And so, you know, that, that story is still very much with us. And it's also important to note that, you know, even though there was a kind of downfall of the Colorado Klan in the late 20s, it, it's a continuation I mean, we still have the Klan and it would be active throughout the 20th century and even to today. So it helps us to understand sort of the progression and the different tactics that have been used by white nationalist organizations. Don, Denverite's Kevin Beatty spoke with Monette Ellington, who moved to Denver in 1938. She's one of the people History Colorado consulted with about the ledgers. 
She remembers a childhood when adults around her spoke in hushed tones about the dangers of the Ku Klux Klan, about burning crosses and front lawns and other concerns. What did her perspectives bring into the decision-making about how to digitize these? So we heard uh, loud and clear from our community advisory group that it was really important not to just drop these uh, newly digitized uh, ledgers in into the universe without any context. There was a unanimous agreement that it was extremely important for us to give context to the larger history in which these ledgers existed. And also, it was important to not just tell the stories of oppression, but to share the history in the state and in the city that reflect the resistance and resilience of those who were targeted uh, by the Klan. And we, we have done that through planned programs that we have coming up. We have done that also through scholarships and articles that you can find on our website alongside the ledger. And we continue to add to this as, as we go on. Uh, we want to make sure that releasing the ledgers isn't just traumatizing or provocative for provocative sake. We want to put it within this larger context both historically and today. In some of the context today, we just saw signs of white supremacy flags on display during the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th. Does publishing documents like this from the 1920s embolden sympathizers, especially during these politically polarized times? Well, we think that, um, you know, we've seen they're already emboldened. Uh, we think that there is a greater good for our collective work as society uh, to build um, a more anti-racist society, a more equitable and just society, that we can only do that if we confront the truths of our history and look for ways that these historical uh, elements still are embodied in our structures and, and our power systems. Nikki, tell me a little bit more about why you find it so important that these ledgers are published. Sure. So I was really excited when I heard that History Colorado was going to publish them and that they were involving the community in how they were going to roll these out. Because I feel since last summer, and this is me speaking as a historian who's studied various moments in our history when we've had this racial reckoning and these opportunities to address inequities in our society, and I'm always a little bit afraid that the, the momentum will die down and we won't be able to make the progress that we need to make. But with History Colorado publishing these ledgers, it's a great example of, of them doing their part um, to contribute to this larger societal conversation that we are having. Professor Gonzalez, the context in this project includes elevating people who resisted white supremacy. Can you tell me about one of them? Absolutely. So there's a few. There's a few examples. Um, one of them is Dr. Joseph Westbrook, who was a physician who practiced in Denver in the early 20th century. And he was a member of the Denver Interracial Commission, as well as the NAACP, which happened to be a very young organization at the time. Um, so he was already working for racial justice prior to the rise of the Klan. But when the Klan arose and, you know, communities began being terrorized by the Klan, he actually, as a light-skinned African-American, he was able to infiltrate the Klan. And so he joined, um, he listened in on meetings, and he was able to warn communities like the Five Points community, which was predominantly African-American, about marches, about cross burnings, about anything that they had planned for that community. So that was one way of resisting. And, and there's many more that I could 
talk about with me too as well. That's an incredible story, incredible courage. Tell me a little bit about how students at Regis University also resisted the KKK. Oh, sure. So as many people know, the, the second clan, which was this iteration of the KKK, which differed from the first clan, which came out of the Civil War, targeted Catholics, Jews. Um, they really, you know, there were a lot of different groups that were targeted, but the Catholic Church was one of them. And um, in, I think it was 1923, the Klan had planned a cross-burning on the campus of what was then Regis College in North Denver. And the students and the Jesuits got word of this, and they decided that they would form a perimeter around the college grounds, armed with baseball bats. And there were rumors that actually some people also had guns. Um, so they lined up and, you know, ready to resist physically the march of the Klan. And the Klan apparently got word of this when they were a couple blocks away from Regis and turned away. And so this is a, you know, a storied narrative on campus that a lot of people take pride in that Regis resisted the Klan, which was part of a, a larger Catholic resistance of the Klan as well. Oh. What kind of response has History Colorado received after publishing these ledgers? The response was almost immediate. Um, the second we announced this on social media, we had uh, people reaching out to us. Uh, scholars were immediately doing research using this data. Uh, people from the public were looking up, you know, maybe family names or addresses. Um, it has been really overwhelming in all of the ways in which people are receiving this new information. Has there been any pushback to it? We really have not um, had pushback to to the digitization of the ledgers. Um, you know, we live in a polarized world in which um, even things like how we interpret history tend to, to fall into polarized camps. Uh, so we expected pushback because uh, we expect it for almost everything we do. But this has been embraced widely. Um, by many, many people. And, um, and it just, uh, you know, helps us know that this work is on the right path. And it's something that the community uh, needs. And, and we're delighted to be able to uh, build those bridges, you know, and build these new knowledges and understandings. I just want to thank you both so much for joining and sharing this context and this history in Colorado. Thank you. Thank you. Don DePrince is History Colorado's Chief Operating Officer. Nikki Gonzalez is an Associate Professor of History and Vice Provost for Diversity and Inclusion at Regis University. She's also a member of History Colorado's State Historians Council. Farming techniques, like using cover crops, can pull carbon out of the atmosphere and help fight climate change. But it can be financially risky for a farmer to try something new. CPR's Michael Elizabeth Sackis has this climate story on efforts in the food industry to change that. It's early on a weekday morning in Longmont, and the co-owners of Whistling Boar are busy in the kitchen getting their weekly meal boxes ready for delivery. We opened a year ago February. Almost a month to the day that everything got shut down. I think we got our business license February 11th. Or something like that, yeah. It's a bit easier for David Petula and Debbie Seaford Petula to laugh at the bad timing of the pandemic and its impact on their catering business now that events like weddings are returning. The two moved to Colorado from Brooklyn five years ago with dreams of living closer to the farms they work with. We wanted to be more personal 
with the farms. We have farmers who now grow for us. Specifically, what do you need this season? And Petula says part of that farm-restaurant relationship is supporting farmers and ranchers in their efforts to lessen their carbon footprint. Agriculture emits more than 10% of total U.S. greenhouse gases, and reducing that number is important to addressing climate change. We wanted to inspire change within the industry because we don't see enough change happening, in our opinion. So the two decided to join a new Boulder County effort called Restore Colorado. The idea is simple, but there's hope for a big impact. Restaurants donate 1% of their profits to fund farming projects that can help fight climate change. Because farms and ranches can actually suck carbon from the atmosphere through plants that take in the greenhouse gas and store it in healthy soil. David and Debbie decided... If we we can't afford 1%, and and things aren't awesome because we're new, you know? Uh, (laughs) But if we can't afford that, then we shouldn't be doing this. It's kind of our philosophy. Right. Boulder started Restore Colorado through a grant from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. The county has teamed up with the nonprofit Zero Foodprint, which first started crowdfunding carbon farming grants in California. Anthony Mint is the co-founder. Our ultimate goal is to create a renewable food economy. And I think what we mean by that is kind of mirroring some of the success of the renewable energy industry. Mint uses examples like how someone can pay a little extra on their utility bill to support clean energy projects, or a homeowner decides to buy power from a solar farm. Mint sees these as accessible ways consumers can make industry greener. And we don't really have that system in farming, and there needs to be a way basically to directly and indiscriminately just improve the grid and just make things better. If you're into the world of great food, you might be familiar with Mint's name. One of his projects, Mission Chinese Food, was named the top restaurant of 2012 by the New York Times. He's now focusing on zero food print, since he says farmers need financial support to make positive environmental changes. Imagine like a rancher if they wanted to plant a bunch of trees and hedgerows and these kinds of things that are great for biodiversity and take carbon out of the atmosphere and create all this public benefit and conserve water, they can't sell the beef for an extra dollar. More than 50 restaurants have joined Zero Footprint, and about 15 of those are in Colorado, with more pledged to participate. The owner of five Boulder Subway restaurants is on the list. Mint sees that as... Almost better than getting Michelin star chefs on board because it helps to signal that there's a new normal and that really anybody can be part of this movement to build healthy soil and fight climate change. Macaulay Family Farm in Longmont is one of the first in Colorado to get a grant from this program. Manager Marcus Macaulay says one way he'll use the money is to create more silvopasture, where trees are grown on grazing land, which is good for... Providing shade and a windbreak for the grass... Around here, probably the best bang for the buck uh, in trying to get more carbon pumped into the ground, utilizing these perennial grasses and perennial trees. And all of those things mean healthier soil, which helps the trees and grass suck even more carbon from the air. And healthier plants mean Macaulay's pasture-raised chicken and sheep are more nutritious, and their grazing does less damage to the land. But growing pastures like this takes time. Tanner Starbard is with the Boulder nonprofit Mad Agriculture, which will work with the county in zero food print to select and oversee these farming projects. Starbard says banks often won't give out loans to farmers and ranchers when potential profit is not immediate. Regeneration is going to take a few years for that system to get up and running. And when banks operate on an annual system, it's automatically disqualified. So we've raised a fund that works with farmers in the long term so that they can bring things to life and have a lender that's going to take that risk with them and help create that future. Five more Colorado farms are lined up to receive regenerative agriculture grants when they become available. And Restore Colorado does not ask for the money to be paid back. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis, CPR News. 
This weekend, Denver's annual Cinco de Mayo celebration joins forces with First Friday, Five Points Jazz Hop, for a series of free concerts. Friday and Saturday, folks can catch live performances of Latin and Chicano music along Welton Street in Denver's historic Five Points neighborhood. The fiesta will even offer salsa lessons. Just another glimpse of normalcy starting to return, that's something to dance about. We'll leave you today with music from one of the artists scheduled to perform this weekend, Los Chicos Malos. Parece que siento un recuerdo muy grande de ti, porque te marchaste de mí. Sufro tanto que seas así por ti, solo por ti. Thank you for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters team. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Siéntelo, siéntelo.